Alrighty, welcome to Lunch Money. You are live. We're coming from our sponsors boardroom uh, here at DVT Group. Uh, I've got two very special guests today. Um, now, if you watched the last episode, last time we did this, we had microphone troubles. So this week, I've got two mics. Uh, I've got I've got Michael Ford. Uh, and we've got Mike House all the way from uh, from WA, um, and I'll introduce them very shortly. Uh, as I said, you're streaming live with Lunch Money. Uh, we are the online and social media home for workout special situations and capital raising professionals. Um, now, uh, all the news this week is very, very confusing. Um, we've got uh, interest rates are up, and that's going to be cruel and unusual. We've got uh, house prices are coming down, which means that uh, people are worried about their own personal net worth and how they're going to pay the mortgage. But it also means in our world of small business and capital raising, what have you, that people have got uh, less borrowing power as the equity in their house reduces. Um, as a, and, and we've got this inflation, this pernicious uh, inflation that doesn't seem to go away and everybody else seems to be able to predict it except the uh, Governor of the Reserve Bank. Um, but on the other hand, unemployment is uh, at record lows, at record lows. So we have got buckets of uncertainty um, and so I've got a couple of experts in today that will deal with uncertainty. So Michael Ford is from Castaway, he's an entrepreneur and uh, uh, software uh, uh, forecasting genius. He's uh, used by a lot of accounting firms around Australia and around the world, actually, um, and for, yeah, for helping people prepare three-way uh, three uh, cash flow forecasts, which still not, still not enough people are totally across those, but uh, we won't go into that. And uh, Mike House is a survival specialist. Actually, we'll start with you, Mike. Um, tell us a little bit, tell us what, a little bit about you by telling us What's crossed your desk this week? And uh, yeah, yeah, great question. Thanks, Nick. Um, the there's been two really significant things. I think so. I do a lot of work these days with leaders uh, developing their capacity to handle uncertainty and pressure, which is what we're talking about here today. Probably the two significant things are a lot of people are saying the discipline to sort of break out of the short-term reactive view that COVID and related responses has kind of held us in for so long and I think that's really hit you folks over on the East Coast with pretty much continual uh, emergency response states with COVID and fires and floods and, you know, it's just been one thing after another. So getting out of that reactive, responsive kind of mode back into a more long-term strategic way of looking has, has been one thing and then, and then the other one with the um, employment status, as you said, really really difficult to find and keep the kinds of people that you need to keep your operations going and that seems to be fairly global from what i can gather uh now just talk a little bit about that so uh i mean so in your you know in your in your day day job mm -hmm. i mean so tell me how um you know how you get engaged to deal with those sorts of issues yeah so i guess my background in survival instructing has given me a lot of insight into how people operate under pressure and and particularly in those states where we've got to be reactive and you know we've got a lot of hardwired mechanisms in our in our body our physiology our brain that sends us there pretty readily when the pressure's on and it's not necessarily the most useful thing you know unless we're unless we're actively running away from something that is genuinely a life threat that's not particularly useful so leadership teams, 
engage me to work with them about, you know, how do we calm the farm? How do we inject a sense of certainty into how we operate as a team? How do we operate as a business when we're out facing our market and the circumstances that we're in and even each other internally uh, in a way that creates certainty despite the fact that there's none around us? Uh, I'm concerned, uh, and we're getting a little bit into the weeds here before I get the opportunity to, to, to introduce Mike, but I'm concerned that, you know, with, with what we've seen over COVID and, and people getting very comfortable working from home and, uh, you know, I had someone that I was talking to about a job the other day and they said, well, you know, how many days a week can I work from home? Um, I'm trying to think, oh, I don't know, I know that you've survived all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful situations. Uh, I think one of them was uh, something uh, aquatic was involved. Um, I mean, if you've got a number of people that are, that are, and they're all needed to pitch in to survive. Um, I mean, is this sort of attitude of, oh, look, I, I don't think I'll come in today. I want to work from work. I mean, how does that work in a, you know, uh, do you think that people have got the, the, the right levels of motivation or am I just misreading it? Oh, look, I, th I think it's really variable at the moment. Nick, it's, uh, we're certainly seeing that a lot of people have pushed back from wanting to be and feel busy and I, I think that's across leadership as well as uh, deeper into organisations. Um, for some people there's a, a bit of a sense of really bobbing in the wake after the last couple of years and, and there's some stresses that have gone along with that mm. and I think that'll take us a little bit to recover from. Primarily I reckon motivation, part of it's internal but I think really one of the big things leaders can do is to inject some certainty into their teams is to be really clear about who are we and where are we heading and how do we do that together and and people will either buy into that or not and if they're bought into it it kind of doesn't matter where they're located i think that said there's some enormous value in being face to face some of that organic work that you can do in solving problems and building culture and understanding each other is is much much easier done face to face than it is remotely Okay, Michael Ford, um, tell me uh, what's been keeping you busy this week? What's been crossing your desk? It's been a big week. Uh, we're in the tech sector, so we're kind of feeling all the roller coaster ride of the tech sector at the moment. What I'm seeing is really there's definitely two speeds. One day you'll see the, the headlines saying uh, some major tech company is shedding 25% of the staff. We had this just, just Wednesday. Some people in the accounting tech sector announced they're, they're removing 25% of their staff. On the other and last night, I'm speaking to people in the UK who are out there trying to raise funds, raise 70 million pounds for the next stage of growth. Now, tech is an interesting sector because there was, there's been significant overreach, I reckon, the last five years. Working, the, the, the capital providers have been spending, have been putting so much money into organisations, allowing them to be lost making for a long time. Suddenly, it seems, the whole world's changed. We're now, the, the investors are focused much more on profit generation, reducing burn rates. It's no longer good enough to run losses for, 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 multiple, for, for many years in the hope that one day the, the, the hockey stick curve kicks in and you, you rate you, you uh, valuations rise. So, I mean, tech's almost the most extreme of, uh, at the moment. Construction, I was talking to someone yesterday in construction, and in a practical sense, this is the CFO of a construction firm. What she's finding is her board is starting to ask different questions, which is the right thing to do. They've been doing budgets and, and forecasts for a long time, but now they're starting to get a lot more into what-if scenario modelling and the like. And was it uh, back in the, the, the 70s, scenario modelling became sexy and then it stopped being sexy. I think it should never have stopped being sexy. Um, those skills in lots of companies have atrophied. The ability to 
handle scenario planning, handle multiple truths at once, multiple future paths and design paths for them. That's really, I and mean, those things are really coming up for me. So some some businesses are doing exceptionally well right now. They've taken advantage, or the, the, the odds have swung in their favour. Others are really struggling. Um, we, of course, keep banging the drum about the importance of not forecasting more that business modelling and scenario planning as a way of getting prepped. And thankfully, I think we're hearing the messages starting to land. Okay, well, on that subject of, uh, of forecasting, like I said before, there's, you know, interest rates, um, you know, there's inflation, uh, you know, in the construction sector, there's uh, fixed price mm. issues, mm. Um, and, you know, there's supply chain issues and, 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 and you know, then... then People trying to grow have got employment issues. I mean, you know, so there are. There's no doubt that the the uncertainty index is a lot higher than it's been in a long time, in many years. Uh, you know, possibly even you know back to the GFC. So with all this business uncertainty, um, I mean, does that make forecasting a little bit redundant? I think on the opposite, or the, the other, the other, the other. Uh, I, I'd take the opposite view that it's more important now than ever. Budgeting. Traditional budgeting is redundant. The old idea of June, you do your budget for the next year and you keep sticking to that until uh, until the next year comes around. That's entirely redundant. I think that can really damage your business. But forecasting is super important because it's, to me, never been about trying to predict a certain future. It's always been about preparing for multiple uncertain futures. So forecasting is right. Modelling is right. I think we've got to adjust the way we do it, however. So often the arguments inside these organisations we deal with are about which number should we put in the one forecast? Our answer is there is no right answer. Pick a scenario, do a forecast for that scenario, work out your roadmap and your game plan, and then go move to a different scenario. So it's very much about holding multiple truths in your head at one time. That's, to me, the ex like forecasting is never about just getting a bunch of numbers on paper. It's about deciding your, your game plan in advance. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's Mike Tyson that says that everyone's got a plan until you get the first punch in the mouth. Absolutely. Um, and, and I know I have heard you say before that, um, you know, forecasting in itself, you know, just sending one forecast. I mean, in, in the military, I've never been in the military, but you've always got different scenarios. And I, I think that, they, you know, you've got a plan. Well, what if the, the enemy responds in this way? Or what if, you know, what if it's raining on that day? Or what if, uh, you know, I think the D-Day landings had a whole bunch of uh, contingencies. Um, so certainly that's an aspect. Listen, I just wanted to remind people that we're live streaming. It's lunch money. Uh, we are here uh, in the boardroom uh, of DBT Group. They've uh, ge very generously sponsored uh, today's live show and provided us uh, with, with a few people to, to join in who I'm going to ask each one of you a question before this show's over. So I hope you're, uh, you're thinking as to what your questions are going to be. And uh, if you're watching live, you can also pop a question in the chat and we will get to that. So uh, how can you uh, emulate the uh, wonderful partner here at DVT, uh, Mark Robinson, and become a sponsor of, uh, of Lunch Money? All you've got to do is put up your boardroom and a plate of sandwiches, and uh, we're yours. We're, we're a pretty cheap date. Um, good. Very entertaining. Is it a date? Is it? Well. Okay. We won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we won't go there. Okay. Now, Mike, um, after that, um, now, 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 um, We've talked about scenarios just now mm. um, and, you know, multiple, it's almost like multiple universes, I suppose. Uh, I mean, how does envisaging different scenarios or outcomes uh, build leadership capacity? Oh, great question. I think it's a, it's a really useful thing to do 
to the degree that your psychology can handle it. So one of the things I notice with this is people will sometimes go down the rabbit hole uh, with scenarios and, and get worked up over the possibilities of, of disaster and catastrophe as well as success, and uh, that's not necessarily useful. So I think there's one of the limiting factors is what's the mindset I'm engaging with? I reckon the mindset's got to be a light one. So imagine that anything almost could happen, but then don't hold on to those outcomes too hard. The problem comes, as Michael said, you know, when we try to predict rather than just envisage what might be possible, predictions are something that humans love. You know, we saw this massively at the start of COVID where people were predicting when it would all be over by, and some of those early predictions turned out to be way off mark. But we love to try and get a sense of certainty by going, here's what's going to happen. And the reality is, no matter how good we are, we, we can't predict in that kind of way. So thinking through possibility, what could happen to us, how could it unfold, absolutely worst case scenario, a couple of really harebrained um, random scramblers, What it, all that's about is how do we maintain some sort of mental flexibility so that whatever happens to us, we're not caught off guard or caught by surprise. And I think you mentioned military before. I do a lot of work with emergency services organisations who do this stuff really, really well. You know, they'll drill for scenarios. We did one in Port Hedland, a northwest town in uh, Western Australia last year where we were forecasting a Category 5 cyclone hit precisely at high tide, um, which has never happened, but it absolutely could. It's, It's an extreme scenario, but not beyond the bounds of possibility. And what that does is it just gets everyone thinking about, okay, what would that look like? How would we respond? What are the important levers that we could pull? Uh, what are the critical pieces that we need to get up and running? Who who can rely on who for what in those sorts of circumstances? And then plan from that kind of thing right through to what's the best case? Um, and then my old man, who was a very successful farmer, used to always say, and then in the middle, you just got to accept whatever happens. Yeah. Um yeah, certainly farming's one of those, uh, <laughs> one, of those one of those things, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you know, you can. I mean, the weather forecasts. I, I mean, I know as a as a as a as a citizen, you know, the weather forecast is so unreliable. I mean, God God help the farmers trying to trying to predict stuff. Uh, we did have a comment there. I threw it up a little bit before from uh, from Kerry Fleming. Thank you very much, Kerry, who said I think scenario planning and contingency planning is one of the most valuable tools of uh, of a business. So thank you very much for your uh, for your comment. Um, just so, uh, Mike. I mean, obviously, you're, uh, you know, I mean, you, you're, in, you're prepared, you know, you've got software that does cash flow forecasting, so that's a bunch of numbers, and um, I'm, and, and you, you speak with a lot of accountants and you know people raising capital and that need to prepare these these forecasts. I mean, what financial practices do you see? Do you come across that you know that have sort of set the markers for success versus uh, set the markers for for failure or, or lack of success really interesting i mean there there is a whole uh, there's a a bunch of capabilities we see in the most successful companies that are almost exclusively missing in the also ran companies and they're simple but you'd summarize them in one way that in in many companies the the finance team or the numbers team is is the caboose on the back of the bullet train they're kind of they're, they're the people you put in the back corner and you don't really give them much light and much water and they just do their jobs and put their spreadsheets up in the best companies, we have a combination of things. So one is uh, regular, ongoing, uh, ongoing rolling forecasting. 
Another one is strong focus on KPIs, but knowing the strength and the weakness of KPIs. So a robust KPI system, which doesn't just set targets for people to adhere to, but actually it, it encourages people's decision-making and behaviours. Another one is communication of the financial position of the organisation. Like as, as businesses, we're trying to score. There is a score we call success, whatever it happens to be for you. So it makes no sense to me that we get people on the pitch playing without telling them how to score, without telling them the rules of the game and not without reflecting, uh, without helping them understand what the numbers actually mean. Well, 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 okay, well, just let me just uh, take a breath. Let me ask you a couple of questions there. Uh, uh, I mean, as a financier, um, you know, we often, particularly in our space of uh, lending into distress scenarios or special situations, mm. uh, you know, relying on historical financials isn't going to get you there. And in fact, the reason people are talking to me is because, you know, whether or not they're buying a business or, you know, turning a business around, Looking at the historicals really doesn't, it's useless, you know. Uh, I mean, so, 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 so then uh, it's a matter of sometimes they're going to ask for a forecast, which is never a good sign that they haven't got it at their fingertips. There are other times when they produce this wonderful document that's got colourful bits all over the place. And I'm asking myself, you know, how much of this are they actually using? And, you know, and how much of it is they've got a package and they've chucked some stuff in, but they're not really using it. And I don't know whether or not they're, you know, I don't know if they're understanding or if they're even communicating it to their team to keep score in the way that you're suggesting. So, you know, again, going back to that question of success or failure and with that in mind, uh, I mean, do you see that? I mean, do you sometimes walk away thinking, you know, I'm just not sure these guys are, you know, they're going to use all the, all the tools, but are they going to actually use them for anything else but producing a, a, pretty, a pretty presentation? Every day. Every day we see that. We get questions from people saying, how do I do a really fast forecast? Because advisors, accountants think that the way to make money is to press a button, have the system put out the numbers, and then they can package it up and send it to clients. Nothing could be less valuable for the organisation. To me, that's fun with maths. It's not forecasting. <laughs> when we set out to help people with forecasting, we say, get, get away from the computer. You've got, to, you've got to think about telling the story of the business first in words. If this happens, this is what we'll do. Um, we, we get people to think about forecasting the do-nothing-different scenario first. So they decide the, the, the roadmap or the, the scenario they're, they're thinking about, the economic situation. And then we ask, what would, what would your business look like if you do nothing different? Will you naturally grow? Will you naturally decline? It, that's a, almost a SWOT analysis without making it formal. And then we say, given that situation, what are the things you could do, the initiatives? Let's imagine more initiatives than, than you can possibly fund or, or resource. But let's, let's put them all on the table. It then becomes a much more useful strategic process. And look, when you're receiving sets of numbers from people and you ask a couple of questions, it'll be readily apparent whether they've put any thought at all, whether it's just 5% growth across the board because that seems nice, or whether they can explain to you that we're putting prices up by 3%, we're expecting volumes in this product group to change, margins are going to change in that, which has this, this impact on inventory. I want pe people to be able to tell the story of the business way before they get to putting those things into numbers. Well, the other thing is too, of course, that, uh, you know, it's one thing to have a forecast profitability, but, you know, if, if a business does have underlying issues, you want to be able to surface those, yeah, you know, in the, in the good old freeway and, and, you know, the rolling balance sheet and all that sort of stuff. Um, now, Mike, 
you know, we've talked about these different scenarios, and obviously this is a very important part, and, 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 and Michael's uh, made that clear. Um, and, you know, we do have uncertainty, right? As I said before, there's, there's just, ma you know, we've been talking about it since since the pandemic, you know, I'm sick and yeah. tired of using that word. Yeah. But, but um, you know, there, 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 you know, we... we, we the war in the Ukraine began at the beginning of the year. You know, we've got this Taiwan stuff going on, and God knows, you know, like as I said, the, the, the reserve. Actually, both of you guys need to go and vi uh, visit the the governor of the Reserve Bank because this time last year he was saying interest rates wouldn't go up until 2024, yeah. uh, which is quite remarkable. So, but I'm sure that they're wrestling with uncertainty. You mm. know, um, yeah, Mike. You know what? I you know, I could ask you what would you be doing? What would you do if you were uh, advising the the the, uh, the head of the Reserve Bank? But you know, we won't we won't get personal. I mean, what 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 can leaders do to help create certainty for their teams uh, in these sorts of times? Yeah, I think that's a really critical skill set for leaders to consider in oh, times right. like this. Nick. And part of the part of the challenge is that. We we like to have the answers, and a lot of the time, the way that we've the way that we've done business has kind of put us into a dynamic where that just feeds itself and reinforces itself. People come to us expecting us to to be able to solve problems and answer answer all the questions. And if we if we dispense the ready answers, then that basically creates a, a bit of a loop where people treat leaders almost like vending machines, and all of the load is on leadership then. And you know, one of the challenges that the leaders are facing right now is they're going, okay, I'm trying to look after my people, but what about me? You know, I'm pretty uh, feeling the weight of this myself. So I think there's a few things that we can do that are critically important around this, and all of them reinforce psychological safety in an organisation. So that's not only the fact that we don't suffer any damage from being at work in a similar way to physical safety, but more importantly, and I think way more importantly for owners and leaders, it's about people can will will speak openly. So if they see a problem or they see a solution, they'll tell you about it. If they need a hand with something, they'll come and ask. Um, one of the one of the most damaging things in uncertain times is if people are trying to stuff things under the carpet and hide it in the closet, and you know there's nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Um, so how can we do that? The the danger if we're not in a situation where people feel like there won't be negative consequences of speaking up. Is it's a human default to be silent. Uh, you know, we, we often, there's all those subtle messages about this, you know, don't shoot the messenger, which means there's been a few messengers shot over the, <laughs> over the years. So if I'm not the messenger, if I keep my mouth shut, I'll probably be okay. No one's ever been fired for speaking up, you know, that, that uh, for not speaking up. You know, silence is safe a lot of the time. And I think we've got this, I've been trying to dig at it and find the, find some actual data around this, but intuitively I feel like we've got this hardwired into us. Right from kids, we we want to point the finger and deflect attention from ourselves if things are going wrong. You know, we'll blame the kid, my sister or the dog ate it or whatever if, if my performance is potentially under the spotlight. So I reckon leaders can do a, a few things around this, Nick. We can, we can focus on very, very clear messaging about direction and ideal destination, and, and that's recognising that, especially in uncertainty, it's probably more like paddling a river than riding a tram. So it's not going to be straight to it. Uh, we, we're going to weave and wander all over the place, but if we're clear about where we're heading, then, as you said earlier, Michael, the, the sort of on-the-ground functional decision-making in the organisation, that capacity goes up 
enormously. Mm. Um, if we're in grey areas, we're like really, really not sure, and the psychological safety element is there, I'm more likely to come back to leadership and go, okay, we've got a patch here and I just really don't know how to deal with it. Can I get your thoughts? But then not bother you if we're, if it's 100% clear, let's go. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a friend who likes to say there's nothing worse than a, a cock-up followed by a cover-up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which sort of goes to what you're saying there. Um, and uh, uh, as you said, I mean, you know, th there is that expression, don't shoot the messenger mm. for a reason. You know, there's mm. plenty of shot messengers. Um, but, you know, I'm also interested just in digging d a little bit deeper into the reactions of uh, you know of leaders, um, mm. you know when they you know when there has been a cover up, or you know or dealing just with an out, an outright cock up. I mean sometimes yeah. people have just cocked up. You know it's yeah. as simple as that. It's yeah. me a culper. I, I stuffed up. Yeah. Um, so you know what what and sometimes the consequences of those can be huge. Like, people are what yeah. yeah. So 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 just talk us through a little bit about how leaders react in those situations to to affect the culture, I suppose. So I reckon the biggest thing there is consistency. So the different cultures, different styles of organisations have very different ways of dealing with this. So in some cases, it might be huge amounts of banter and a lot of, you know, the person will get copper heap of ridicule. It could be just there's the eject button, you're out of here. Um, whatever the style of the organisation is, the, the critical thing is consistency. So the biggest damaging element, I reckon, is when you get a mismatch between what's said, you know, we've got values on the wall that say we behave this way, the words out of my mouth say here's right. what we do. Mm. Right. But then if our actions are different to that, that's a very, very clear message to people that what all that stuff is just words on a page or words out of the mouth. It's not actually how things are done here. The closer, I reckon this is something that leaders have to be polishing all the time. The closer we can bring the daily reality of how we behave, not just as leaders to our organisations, but as teams within organisations, peer-to-peer, level-to-level, interdepartmentally, the more consistency we can get around that, the more resilient we are to external uncertainty because we know it's like, hey, I know, I know how we will operate regardless of what that does to us. Mm. If we're adding additional uncertainty by making that stuff inconsistent, Teams get the, the instant results of that pretty much are we'll, we'll enter into blame, we'll start to build pr protective walls around the silos, uh, we'll start to function in, in small functional pods that don't want to talk to each other, we'll try to make our individual or collective performance in those units look better than the rest of the collective and we end up just fighting against each other rather than all heading in the same direction. Well, I think that uh, it's interesting what you're saying there because what Mike uh, was saying before about um, the use of, you know, forecasting and data and communicating mm -hmm. that uh, with teams, I think there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, correlation there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, look, we talk about forecasting as being a, the outcome is a bunch of numbers, but... Think about the exercise of forecasting and doing it properly. You're getting multidisciplinary multi teams, people from across the organisation, sitting down, identifying the problem we're trying to solve. It's a phrase we use internally all the time to get people to focus, not just on the, the instant reactivity that they can do, but what's the bigger picture we're really trying to drive to? Um, so forecasting is, as I said, it's about storytelling inside the business. So you get more people spending more time thinking about what are the risks ahead of time, what are the opportunities ahead of time, 
where do we want to buy as our action? How do we nudge towards, uh, towards opportunity away from risk? And also, if we're doing the do nothing different, do something different, you're teaching people every day to evaluate the possibilities ahead of them. And so forecasting itself is not just about telling a story of the business. It's about training the muscle. If you've got more people than the CEO or the C-suite or the leadership group, thinking about the future of the business, you surely are better off. And that means when it comes time to react, when something's popping up that you haven't dealt with before, they've got a framework for thinking. So it's not just about how am I going to make myself look good or not look bad. It's about what does the business need at this point? Because I've never really come across people who want to sabotage your business. But moments of stress are the real challenge points. We talk about, we, to me, there's a real difference between reactivity and agility. Reactivity is just rabbit in the headlights, what do I do next? And you're more likely to get lots of bad decisions if we're simply being reactive. The amygdala kicks in and the fight or, fight or flight response. More powerful is the Formula One pit crew idea of being agile. The ability to plan the business for long-term steady runs, but then when something goes wrong, we are ready to deal with it in 2.3 seconds. Uh, that is a massive difference. And I've dealt with organisations where we've transformed them. It's taken years to transform them from reactivity to agility, but the benefits pay off long-term. What, um, Mike, I, I'm just, I know you've, you've brought a, a few books there. Mm. Um, do you want to just hold them up uh, to this camera here? And uh, just uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about how they sort of uh, fit in a little bit with what we've been talking about. I'll hold them for you. Well, actually, you good work. I, I, I stole your uh, unshakable there for the name of this uh, yeah, the show today. So, That's great. Uh, so, yeah. so the two of them, the, the red cover there is um, Thrive and Adapt, which was the first book I wrote. And it's basically my observations straddling the worlds of survival instructing and change and noticing what people do under pressure. And it's, it's a tactical toolkit for leaders and individuals dealing with pressure. Um, so pretty, you know, it's down in the weeds. It's stuff that you can literally rip out. In the it really is. It's great. I mean, it's, it's very, very practical. It's like a manual. It's like a field yeah, guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The intent was to make it very, very usable so that the kinds of tactics and tools that are in there don't need to be uh, implemented in any other way than pick them up and use them. They, they don't supplant any other systems that you've got in your business, they can right. run really well alongside. Unshakable, I wrote uh, when COVID started to unfold, um, and it's it's more about the leadership conversation. So how do, pretty much exactly the conversation we're having today, mm -hmm. how do leaders inject a sense of certainty where nothing around them is? But it's also a little bit of a field manual it is, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, I can't help myself. Having been a survival <laughs> instructor for 20 years, I, ha I have to get tactical. It's like if I can't put my hand on it, and use it, then I kind of go, what's it for? So I, I try to balance well-researched, evidence-based uh, stuff from physiology, psychology, and a number of other fields with, is this something that I can actually pick up and use under pressure? And as a consequence, I end up doing, you know, I said before, doing quite a bit of work with organisations that respond to emergencies because they find this stuff useful for their leadership teams too. Um, okay. Well, www.mikehouse.com.au. Mikehouse.com.au. But we will put uh, we'll put a link in uh, in all the in all, in all the socials um, when we promote this. Um, okay. Listen, I'm going to put you guys on the spot, and mm. while I'm doing that. 
Uh, I'm just going to give these guys in the room here, anyone watching live, a last chance to to to, uh, to fire a question in. Um, now we've we've talked about a whole bunch of a bunch bunch of stuff, you know, dealing with uncertainty and forecasting and you know, predicting the future and scenarios. Um, I mean, how are you applying this in, in your business? Start with you, Mike. Yeah, so for me, for me personally, most of, my, most of my bread and butter income was working conferences, speaking live at events pre-COVID, and that fell off a very steep cliff. Gave me plenty of time to write a book, which was <laughs> kind of handy. Um, so that's a good example, I suppose. It's like, what can I do productively right now that keeps me... Uh, useful and in view to the kinds of markets that I speak to and writing a book was a good option not very often we get that amount of time available and then you know we've adapted a lot in terms of being able to coach and speak and run workshops online um, which has led us to a more global audience than we had before which is fantastic Um, and you know now we're looking at how do we blend those methodologies now that we're back to live and face to face how do we blend some of that stuff for greatest effect? We, we, you know, for me, it's a constant learning about how can we hone the craft and then use the tools available to, to greater effect. Okay, well, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah, that, that you're right. That's a great example, isn't it, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, walking. We in a very dynamic environment, so uh, we compete globally and we work with accounting firms and businesses all over the world. We've got competitors popping up all the time. So... We practice always what we preach. Uh, we're right at the end of a, let's close to three years project to build a new piece of software. What the world looked like three years ago is very different to what the world looks like today. Unfortunately, it kind of needs what we're doing even more. But as an example of how we do this, um, we recognize that launching this new bit of software, it's a cloud thing, gave us a chance to kind of rethink the entire organization. So 18 months ago, we spent tons of time thinking about what's going to happen in the next month or two. So we planned 18 months ago how our business changes, how our process changes, how our people and skill sets need to change in order to adapt and thrive in a cloud-based world where we're within a desktop product. might sound like just a platform change, but in fact, being a cloud product gives us an incredible new set of data, a new whole, which then dictates a whole new way of operating. Also opens us up globally to a whole lot, a whole lot of new customers and new types of, of interests that we need, we need to serve. So we planned that 18 months ago. We spent lots of time, about three months, really getting every part of the, every team in the business thinking about documenting down to the detail. What I've found over the years is it's nice to have motherhood statements. Yes, we want to do this. We'd like to do that. Until you get stuff on paper, which is who's going to do what and what does it look like, until we get down to the detail, it's not really planned. So we practice that regularly. We're also in a, in a situation where as a, as a tech organisation, we are filled with ideas. There's more ideas than we'll ever get to do. And so we're constantly assessing roadmaps, assessing horizons, uh, and and listening deeply to our customers and our non-customers. So we're always assessing what do we do next. Um, it's it, it, for me, it's super exciting to be able to live this stuff day by day. And yes, we have a, a financial forecast. I have a deep faith that if we keep doing things the right way, the finances in the end will look after themselves. So as long as we know we're solvent and we've got enough cash to, to keep running, uh, it's a great exercise. Okay, now, Mike, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Go. Now, listen, you've come all the way from Perth. Okay. And I know what it's like carrying a whole lot, a lot of heavy luggage around. Now, here's Kerry Fleming. She's made two very nice comments. She said she's loving this stream. Brilliant. How can we lighten your load going back to Perth for Kerry? Is there some way we can do that? 
lighten my load. Yeah, well, yeah. a book. Oh, great idea. We could. I'm pretty leave. heavy. I'm, I'm going to leave these okay. copies All right. for All right. people well, in the room and people online. Okay. In whatever way you want. All right. So well, Kerry, if you Kerry, if you you find you yeah. If you find a way, if you just look me up at, at Hermes or go to my LinkedIn, send me a DM. And with your details, and uh, there'll be a book on its way to you. I'll sign it for you, Kerry. Thank there you, you for lightening my load. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good one. And thank oh, you for the comments. Really great insights. It's lovely. It's very it's good. I think. I think. I. I. I do. Unless it's a remarkable coincidence, there was a wonderful lady a number of years ago that was uh, an external bookkeeper for a client of mine. So yep. if that's you, Kerry. Fantastic. G'day. Um, all right. Well, we've got these people here. We can't show them again because that other camera really wasn't working. Any questions from the floor? Yes, one, one Mark um, Robinson. Yeah, uh, just in terms of organisational structure, I think we have become certain, uh, you know, moving additional hierarchy of structure through to, I guess, the Let's just feed that question back for the listeners, just in mm -hmm. case um, that that didn't didn't come right across. So really, we're talking about uh, organisational structures, team structures, and uh, what structures do you believe are the best uh, for dealing with uncertainty? Yeah. Have I captured that? Yeah, yeah, Mike. So, I'd, uh, great question, Mark. Thanks. I'd, I'd make two points around that. Uh, one is I reckon there's a really cracking model in military special forces for this, and they talk about hierarchical, uh, situational hierarchies. So I might be in charge by rank or position, but if we're facing an unexploded device, then the bomb disposal expert becomes the senior on the team. And there's no question about that. It's just right. You you have the knowledge, the specialist knowledge for what we're in right now. Let's go. And and they've they've got a very nimble way of blending expertise so that hierarchy follows expertise. Um, Ray Dalio talks about that in when he talks about things like believability, weighting opinion. So you know, listen widely to everybody, but give greater weight to people who've sort of been in the trenches and know what they're talking about and have got a track record. And uh, I think the other one that we can do is to be uh, very, very clear again just about that kind of directionality stuff. So leaders who the fire and emergency services do this stuff really well, they try to give an incident command intent statement and that's preferably just a paragraph and it's so clear that people on the ground can make decisions within their realm of discipline and uh, responsibility that they know are aligned with where we're heading and they're not going to get reamed for it, basically. So it makes for very fast, very nimble decision-making on the ground. There's a great example. I won't actually pull it out because it'll chew too much time, but there's a great example in the book from a, a, software, uh, from a cyber response company in Perth where uh, Brian Smith, he's the CEO and founder of that business, his purpose statement for the organisation is exactly that. When you read it, you can feel in its DNA that anyone in his business facing almost anything would be able to make very fast decisions and know that they were on the right track and they'd have the backing of their leads. That's fantastic. That's yeah. a great answer. Yeah, that, that, that's a wonderful answer. What about yourself, uh, Michael? You, no, I guess in your... It's hard to add to that. Uh, in our experience, I think it's important to have two things. One is that... The, you organise into teams and each team understands its contribution and its role to the overall organisation. Teams are fantastic because they enable specialisation. They're dangerous because they allow separatisation. You want to create teams to focus on skill sets, but then 
keep people reminded that they are part of a wider organization. And so for us, it's, it's like it's response moments. We, we map out what a response to, say, a, an emergency in our organization. Something goes down. We had this a few weeks ago. Uh, a, a critical part of our software broke. And so we had to build, pull people from the tech team, the customer success team, leadership team. We'd already mapped out what that response looked like. So everybody knew in times of a crisis what their roles were going to be. So teams for specialization, but then processes to connect people at different times. Uh, I think Mike put it more eloquently. Well done. <laughs> okay. Any, any more questions from, uh, from the floor? Yep. Um, so we've talked a lot about... Nick Chase Barry from uh, ARA. Uh, we've talked a lot about situation planning and modelling. I think human nature, sometimes people can get fixated mm. on a process like that and distract from other elements of their business. How often do you think a third party needs to come in and review those contingencies, give a reality check to the business laws team? Okay, so just to, again, just to paraphrase that in case uh, <clears throat> the mic didn't catch it. So uh, sort of uh, getting external, an external fresh pair of eyes to make sure that that uh, the contingencies are there and, and that uh, all of these things we've been talking about are, are, uh, are there. What, what, when and how and... Interesting question. Uh, I, I have to give the consultants answer that it depends. <laughs> it depends on how strong the muscle is for open, honest conversation inside the organisation. The beauty of bringing in an outsider is they can ask questions that no one else often feels comfortable to ask and can keep drilling in when they hear something that doesn't quite, doesn't quite gel. When the CEO starts talking and everyone shuts up, um, the, the outsider can hold them and say, hey, what's your thought? What's your thought? I, it, I would much rather see a robust, uh, it's, it's not so much a planning culture, but a, a culture of what are we going to do? Because every time you sit down and think about a situation, in fact, what you're saying is, what are we strong at? What are we weak at? What are the holes we haven't seen? To me, there's a massive amount of learning just in that process. I, I would always rather the organisation be able to do it themselves, but sometimes they just need a nudge. Um, the, the, if we're talking about reforecasting and planning, it really depends on the speed of the organisation, how quickly it's changing. Some organisations, you only need to look at the, the forecast every six months because things don't really change that much. Sometimes every three months. Sometimes you're looking at it every single week. It really depends on the pace of change. To me, there's a, a structure, a series of meetings and conversations that should happen in order to either plan or scenario test or whatever. How regularly they happen depends on how quickly the organisation's changing. And the frequency can change over time in the organisation. I, mean, I see great organisations who really think deeply about how to how to have the company be agile based on whatever speed it's or whatever set of changes they're going through. Yeah, I mean, we're running out of time, so there's a whole bunch of questions I'd love to throw there. I mean, of course, one of the classic things with consultants is to to get them in and to make sure they tell you what you want to hear so that uh, you can have this sort of external third-party imprimatur, so you've got to avoid that. The other thing is that particularly in distress scenarios, I mean, it's, sometimes a consultant can come in and tell everybody the bad news that the... Uh, that the owner, manager, you know, senior leadership team just haven't got the stomach to do, mm -hmm. um, and so, so so sometimes there's that. All right, listen, we have we you know we we've been going for forty five minutes, guys. It's mm -hmm. a little bit hard That's to good. believe, isn't it? And the battery's held up on the laptop, which is <laughs> sensational because uh, some of my contingency planning. Uh, well, it's worked. I've got enough juice, don't I? Uh, time for one more question, if we've got one. 
how do you go about getting the buying the buying below and above or in an organization? Mm. Okay, so when when you when the person that's I guess putting the forecasting together, how do you make sure you've got the right level of buy-in from above and from below to make that process uh, as as useful as possible? I think that's about earning a right. If the forecast is seen as a set of numbers against which people can only be punished, it's never going to get buy-in. If it's seen as an exercise where you do the numbers and then the, the, the boss says, hang on, we need that 10% bigger and that one 10% smaller, so you don't really feel like you're... Your input makes a difference. Of course, it's not going to work. We prefer to de-emphasize the importance of the numbers and, and uh, increase the emphasis of the of the business conversation. And surely that means every part of the organisation needs to be part of the conversation. We're going to sell more. We've got to make more. If we're going to make more, we've got to store it somewhere. If we've got to store it somewhere, we've got to look after it. How do we make sure all those things fit together? If we're in a in a goods business, if it's service business, the same. Where are we? What, what clients are we picking up? What sort of services are we offering? How do we improve efficiency but also build effectiveness? Those are cross-organisation co cross conversations. That's what forecasting looks like when we do it. And I think the conversations are engaging and therefore there's automatic buy-in. But that's not often forecasting or budgeting the way it's normally thought of. I don't think we should do it the way it's normally thought of. Interesting. I used to work for an American corporation and... Uh, they uh, they had quarterly budgeting and all this sort of stuff, but I, I you know it, it, you're right. I mean the budgets and the forecasts really were viewed by uh, by us as um, you know senior management trying to find, come up with new cruel and unusual ways of, <laughs> of torturing us. I mean seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it really was. Okay, listen, we're going to wrap it up. I'm just going to uh, I, I don't want to finish on the note of uh, cruel and unusual punishment. I want, to, <laughs> I want to end on a high. So starting with uh, Mike House, so what's your advice to people generally? Just in a, in a nutshell, uh, you know, we're coming up to Christmas, so that's, that's, that's something positive. But how can we um, maintain a spring in our step as, uh, as we're worried about what, uh, you know, whether or not the next puddle we step in is a, you know, a hole to hell or, uh, or just a puddle? Yeah. So, look, I, I think I'd go right back to what I said at the beginning, Nick, about uh, consider the various scenarios widely but hold them really lightly. Mm. This can be a mechanism, whether you're doing it as a, as an individual or a business operation, uh, it, it can be a mechanism for doing your head in. Um, farmers were classic for that, you know, we'll all be ruined was the, was the <laughs> regular cry. So um, hold them lightly, that, that would be my biggest advice because all of them are possible and some of them may happen. Um, remind yourself regularly, human beings are fantastically resilient. We've, we've been through many, 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 many changes of epic scale over the course of human history and we're still around to tell the story. Um, we're bloody good. We've got this. And I, I think that's worth reminding ourselves of. We, we have the capacity and we are very, very good at dealing with change. It, it doesn't feel comfortable when we're in the midst of it, um, but we got this. Okay. Michael Ford? Uncertainty is real. It has been real forever. So instead of fighting against it, we should be embracing it. Uh, stress comes out of uncertainty. Uncertainty comes out of things that you don't expect. But if you've already kind of played it out in, 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 a, in advance, you can approach any situation calmly. You may not like the outcome, but you know what you're going to do, and that, I think, creates great confidence. Um, that's all there is. It's, it's as simple as that. Embracing, accepting uncertainty is real, making it your strength, being like the Formula One pit crew ready for anything. And that whole thing is quite a fun exercise. 
and a fun culture, if you've got a business that, that is able to keep thinking about its future, it, there, there is a lightness to it. There is a confidence to it. Okay. All right. Well, look, um, just before we wrap up, I'll, uh, I'll just remind people that uh, uh, if you would like to uh, host Lunch Money in your boardroom and put on a plate of Sangers, then, uh, then let me know. It's always a little bit of fun to do it in front of uh, a small handful of, uh, of people. Um, and I'm going to ask our, our massive audience here uh, to give a, a big uh, uh, Lunch Money uh, warm uh, thank you uh, to our guests, Mike House and Michael Ford. All right. I'm um, looking forward to catching up with you again soon. Cheers.